You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. A lot of us kids in, in the inner city, especially in like Seattle and places where baseball isn't played a lot, we thought, oh, man, baseball is a white boy sport, man. Not only white people play baseball or whatever. But my mom said, baby, that's 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 so not true. She said we used to dress up on Sundays and our parents would take us to the Negro League games. And, oh, man, the stands would be packed and it would be raucous and rowdy and everybody was cheering and whatever the case is. But what happened, of course, was that as the Negro League faded and Jackie Robinson crossed over and, you know, the problem was we never had that smooth transition where where African-Americans just boom, were integrated into the league. And it was a sport that we felt included and invited to be a part of. So Ken, he was really the bridge between the African-American community and baseball, because before that, man, I mean, to be honest with you, before Ken, me and then probably 90 percent of dudes that I ran with, we just weren't weren't into baseball like that, man. Ken Griffey Jr. and Jackie Robinson played baseball over 30 years apart, but they get brought up in the context of each other quite a bit, and for good reason. Both were baseball celebrities that brought black fans to the MLB, both were exceptional athletes, both had strong family values, and they both ushered in a new era of superstardom in baseball. Jackie Robinson's up in the Dodger fifth, is one away, and he belts one high off the right field screen for a double. Jackie was the MLB's first black superstar, and he's probably one of the most widely known baseball names outside of baseball to this day. Yet a lot of people don't know that part of our respect and remembrance of Jackie today is actually due to Ken Griffey Jr. I don't know if Jr. knew it would take off the way that it did, you know, and of course it went from an idea that he had to wear it to honor Jackie to it being done baseball wide. That's game changing. That's Bob Kendrick president of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum in Kansas City. You know, that's one of the things that we'll look back decades and decades later at what he did to pay tribute to a true American hero. In 2007, while Ken's career with the Reds was winding down, Junior wanted to pay tribute to Jackie and wear his number, 42. So Junior called former commissioner Bud Selig at home to get permission, since Jackie's number had been retired by the league. Selig ran the idea past Jackie Robinson's wife, Rachel, who said, go for it. Selig then asked Junior if other players could participate, and Junior said, the more the merrier. Had it been just an average ball player that had kind of pursued this, if it would have happened, perhaps it could have. But when it's the magnitude of a Ken Griffey Jr., people have to take notice. It speaks volumes about Ken's identity his ability to identify with his sense of self, where he came from. Today, all players, coaches, and managers on the field wear number 42 jerseys on Jackie Robinson Day in April. When asked about Jackie Robinson Day in an interview once, Junior said, quote, without Jackie Robinson, there wouldn't be a Ken Griffey Sr., and there wouldn't be a Ken Griffey Jr., 
and now, and that's why we get Jackie Robinson Day every April 15th, as we rightfully should. We should never forget Jackie Robinson. Cola, had you heard this story about Ken or knew that he was the one that spearheaded everyone wearing 42? No, man. I mean, to be honest, I'm, it's crazy I haven't heard that story, but the story doesn't surprise me. Ken's connections to wanting equity in baseball and wanting things to change. I mean, shoot, it stems from events that was a date back to all the way when he was a kid, right? I mean, when he was 12 years old, you remember that story he told on the MLB Network documentary where they... Oh, with him and him and his dad and the Yankees, yeah. Yeah, yeah. The story is basically that Junior is a kid and his dad is playing for the Yankees. The two of them are hanging out in the dugout and a security guard comes over and says that George Steinbrenner, the Yankees owner, doesn't want anyone around the dugout. So he leaves, but Ken Sr. tells Junior to look over at third base, where Craig Nettleson, who is white, is taking ground balls with the team. Here's a clip from that documentary. And at that time, my dad was, you know, 38 years old. He's like, I ain't fighting this no more. I got somebody a little younger and a little bit better. So, number one, I'm sure that that uh, was, as he described, a little bit of fuel against the uh, Yankees as he became a player. <laughs> and then, you know, number two, man, I think it's just like more of why his heart, man, is focused on pushing that needle, man, and changing the narrative of the way these things kind of go, man. He wants to see, you know, racial equity in baseball for sure. Well, today we're going to be diving into exactly that, looking at where baseball came from, how it's changed and where it's going and where can kind of fits into all that so a little bit of a history lesson today hope you're ready for it cola i am man bring it i'm alex ford i'm cola malik and you're listening to american prodigy so in the early stages of making this show as we were outlining all the episodes there was one video about baseball's relationship to black players uh, that sort of sent one of our producers, Jessica Bodyford, on a trip through baseball history. And the video kind of sums up what this whole episode is about. So I want to bring her in for this. Hey, Jessica. Hi. Uh, how did we how did we find this video or how did we arrive at this video? Well, you know, I I'm one of those people who just lives on YouTube. So <laughs> I probably looked up Ken Griffey Jr. Baseball. Who knows? But it was during my uh, time on the YouTubes. So, Cole, we're going to send this uh, video to you uh, to watch. Okay. This is from 2015. This was Chris Rock uh, had a segment on the HBO show Real Sports. Why don't black people like baseball anymore? When I was growing up, we loved baseball. I followed the Mets. And in 1986, we won it all with Doc, Daryl, Mitchell, and my man Mookie. Back then, almost 20% of all major leaguers were African-American. And I could actually have conversations with other black people about baseball. Hey, what's up, man? You see the game last night? Yeah, it was great. Now, if I say to a black person, did you see the Met game last night? They'll say, what the fuck's a Met? I feel exactly how Chris Rock felt when you discussed the Mariners, especially that fact that I began to kind of get into, you know, baseball and started to realize it's a beautiful sport and was fresh off of meeting Ken and checked out my first game in person. I Man, I hadn't seen a baseball game growing up at all. I think what Chris Rock is talking about is something that many Black baseball fans and just baseball fans in general have said. 
It's just, he says it in such a way, it's funny, but it's true. So Jessica, a lot of people have sort of made this point that we've talked to on the show that Ken Griffey Jr. opened up the game to them and sort of brought in a new generation of fans. Something we haven't asked on the show yet is, is Ken Griffey Jr. one of the last black baseball superstars? I think certainly there's some of his contemporaries, Barry Bonds, uh, Andrew McCutcheon, Mookie Betts today. I mean, there's been black baseball stars since, but not on like that household name level that Jr. was. What's the implications of having less black players in the MLB and how does that affect the sport in a broader sense? So I have some numbers in front of me that really put Ken Griffey's stardom into perspective. Hit me. So when he started in 1989, his rookie year, black players made up uh, about 16.5% of the MLB. By 2016, when Griffey is entered into the Hall of Fame, the number of black players goes down to 7%. That's pretty significant. That's by over half. Right. In like not that long of a time. Exactly. And then the population um, of black people in America has increased during that same time by 2%. So the, these are trends moving in opposite directions between the country and the sport. Yeah. So one of the people that I interviewed was Shakia Taylor. I have been a baseball fan since the early 90s. Like a lot of people we talked to for the show, Ken Griffey Jr. was a huge reason for Shakia getting into baseball in the first place. And it wasn't just about playing baseball. He was a great baseball player, but his personality changed the game. He was confident. He has fans from all walks of life. He was really exciting to watch. He was young and he was unapologetically black in baseball. That's my energy right there. Like, unapologetically Black in baseball, do it. When you hear people say representation matters, this is exactly what they're talking about. For Shakia, Griffey opened the door to baseball when she was a kid. But these days, she's not really the typical baseball fan. The average baseball fan is 57, white and male. So that already you know, kind of alienates a large segment of the population. So when when the average fan is of a certain age, you don't grow, you don't, you don't really bring in anybody new. There's no new interest. So the decline of the black player just kind of, I don't know, it just, it's, it's disheartening. Uh, baseball is a sport for everyone. It doesn't belong to any particular person or culture or race or whatever. But that's kind of what happened. Is it, it, got, it got snatched. When it comes to baseball, it is a mirror of society, period. So for a person like you or anyone, history is definitely a good entry point for baseball. Anything happening in the world, In this country especially, there's probably a parallel moment in baseball for it. You don't have to go back too many years to see the parallels between baseball and American history. In 2014, the San Francisco Giants won the World Series and played the St. Louis Cardinals in the NLCS to get there. Chris Rock talks about it in his HBO segment. The San Francisco Giants won it all without any black guys on the team. The closest thing to a person of color in the stands was their mascot a biracial seal. And the team the Giants had to beat to get there, the St. Louis Cardinals had no black players either. None. How could you ever be in St. Louis and see no black people? And and get this, their crowds were more than 90% white, like the Ferguson Police Department. 
There is growing outrage tonight after an unarmed African-American teenager was shot and killed by police in the St. Louis suburb of Ferguson, Missouri. That August, Michael Brown was shot by Ferguson police officer Darren Wilson. And then, that October, while the playoffs happened at Bush Stadium in downtown St. Louis, protests to the shooting continued just a few miles north. Also that year, in 2014, black players in the MLB accounted for only 6.7% of the league, its lowest mark since 1957. To put that in perspective, 1957 was the same year as the Little Rock Nine. Little Rock, Arkansas, and the first phase of the trouble. The white population are determined to prevent colored students from going to the school their own children attend. Picketing the school, they clash with the police. I would bet there's people who would dismiss that 2014 series all as coincidence. Yeah, I would bet so, too. As in, you know, like, oh, that team happened to be all white and that crowd happened to be all white. Yeah, but this is not an unusual thing. Black people have been leaving baseball for quite some time now. We can't really discuss the decline of black baseball players without talking about the Negro Leagues and how they started. The Negro Leagues were developed in the early 1900s after white team owners decided the pro teams would be whites only. So, as a response, black players made their own leagues, and they had some serious stars, many of whom ended up playing for the major leagues, including Satchel Paige, Hank Aaron, Willie Mays, and Jackie Robinson, of course. And there's no question that Junior could have played in the Negro Leagues. You know, he's a combination of several players that come to mind, you know, when I see him. That's Bob Kendrick again, president of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. There's a little bit of Turkey Stearns in him. There's a a little bit of Oscar Charleston. He's a five-tool guy, but see, he was a great athlete. And, And the players from the Negro Leagues were, by and large, great athletes. They could have played anything. They just played baseball because really that was the only sport that you could make a living for back then. Imagine Ken Griffey Jr. playing with the likes of Cool Papa Bell or Buck Leonard. Now that would be something to see because in the Negro Leagues, if you had it, you flaunted it. The late, great Buck O'Neill, God bless his soul, would say that oftentimes the major leaguers would accuse them of showboating. You know, if a guy went, dove in the hole, flipped the ball behind his back to start the double play, the major leaguers say, oh, they just showboating. But as Buck O'Neill would say, number one, if you got something to show, show it. Number two, it's only showboating when you can't do it. (laughs) I love that Bob Kendrick line because I've never thought about showboating that way, but it's totally true. Like, if anyone's showing off ever rubs me wrong, it's always, yeah, it's like, I didn't or can't do that. <laughs> exactly. And the Negro Leagues, they brought it. Yeah. Let me tell you, people loved watching those games so much that churches, African-American churches would change their service times to make sure that their congregants wouldn't be late for the baseball games. My mom told me stories of where her father would get them all dressed. They'd all get dressed up on Sundays and they'd go and get together and families all throughout the community would go and watch the games because it was so well supported, you know, and and we loved baseball in our community. Give me a sense of like how popular the Negro Leagues were even compared to the major leagues, because I don't I don't really know. So like in 1942, for example, 
um, the Negro Leagues had three million fans. And then for the All-Star Games, sometimes they brought in as many as 40 to 50,000 people. In some cities, they brought in more fans than the MLB games. Really? Mm-hmm. So w- what happened to that after Jackie Robinson breaks the color line and the leagues start to integrate? What, what happens to the, to the leagues then? Yeah, so a lot of things change when um, the MLB starts taking the best black players. In 1946, for example, the Newark Eagles, they were a really successful um, franchise in the Negro Leagues. They had about 120,000 people attend their games. And then just two years later, their numbers dropped down to a measly 35,000. Fans were just like following their favorite players. I can see too, like the the whole economy built around these leagues. I mean, that eventually would have shriveled up. Yeah. And considering that the MLB profited from the black players and the fans that the Negro Leagues cultivated, it's really ironic that the MLB is experiencing another slump in the number of black players and fans today. Safe to say that the MLB owes a lot to the Negro Leagues for their early stars coming over and playing. Right. And it's not just the MLB. Bob Kendrick told me that the influence of the Negro Leagues went beyond the country's borders. Because the Negro Leagues helped make this game the global game that it is. You see, Jessica, they took baseball into Canada. They were oftentimes the first Americans to play in many Spanish-speaking countries. So this right here was really surprising because I had never heard about Black Americans traveling to Latin America during segregation. I heard about folks going to Europe for refuge and to flourish in their their careers, but not Latin America. But this is true. It took until last year in 2020, but the MLB finally added the Negro League stats to their official records. And when you look closer at some of the names of these players from a century ago, names like Martin DeHigo, Pedro Cepeda, and Luis Tiant Sr., another trend in modern day baseball begins to emerge. The overwhelming majority of Latinos that came to the United States to play professionally played in the Negro Leagues. Dr. Adrian Burgos writes books about baseball and is a professor of sport history and Latino history at the University of Illinois. It was something that I, as a lifelong baseball fan, did not know until I was doing a research project on baseball's introduction to Caribbean. I was stunned. I had no idea. I knew about very few Latinos playing in the major leagues before Jackie Robinson, but that the overwhelming majority of Latinos were barred from playing in the major leagues because of the color line. So the Jim Crow system of baseball was a system that affected baseball internationally. And that means Jackie Robinson's contribution in breaking down and beginning to break down that system of exclusion um, was would have international repercussions. So I'm curious, how does baseball actually get to Latin America in the first place? Because I I know baseball sort of spread after the Civil War from East Coast to the West, but I don't know how it actually went south to Latin America. So during that same time, uh, the Civil War in the 1860s, the Cuban elite sent their children to study in the United States. And during that time, the students, they picked up on baseball They brought that love for baseball back to Cuba. And so suddenly the Cuban pastime changed from bullfighting to baseball. It was a resistance to Spanish colonialism. 
And during this period in the late 19th century, as Cuba was fighting for independence, as they emigrated outside of Cuba to Dominican Republic, to Puerto Rico, to Yucatan region of Mexico, to Key West, Florida, um, they, they took baseball with them and they created baseball teams, they shared the game. One individual from Dominican Republic refers to the Cubans as the apostles of baseball, because wherever they went, they shared the good news of the game. On MLB's 2020 opening day rosters, Latinos made up almost 30% of players, yet represented 18.5% of the U.S. population. I recall a lesson from my grandmother on how to be a Latina baseball fan. And I remember asking her, because she was she lived in the Bronx for about 30 plus years, and I asked her, she's a big baseball fan, are you a Yankees fan or a Mets fan? And she told me, I'm a Yankees fan but I don't root against the Mets because they're from my city. They're from New York City. And then I root for whichever team has the most Latino players on it. Which person of color cannot relate to this? Personally, this was my whole strategy in 2018 for the World Cup. At the beginning, I rooted for Nigeria's soccer team because they had an all-Black team and a Black head coach. And they lasted quite a long time. By the end, I was repping for France because they had the most Black players and France ended up winning the 2018 World Cup with a majority Black team. You find yourself rooting for that because, I mean, what what are we, 13% of the population? So sometimes we're underrepresented in a lot of spaces, and we just want to be able to stand up there with everyone and prove what we can do and show what we can do. And you, and you feel a sort of a sense of inner pride to say that, hey, we're, 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 we're shoulder to shoulder with you guys, right? You know, I, I, I love that. The small number of Black American baseball players is mirrored by the diminishing number of Black American baseball fans. We don't see ourselves. So who are we going to root for? That is a that is a million dollar question right there. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So I think this kind of brings us to another catch in in Griffey's legacy. And it's this question I've been kind of mulling over as we talk through this stuff, which is that if Griffey was this charismatic new face of baseball that brought in all these new fans, then why has baseball's popularity continued to decline since he played? So there are three things that I see as challenges. The recruitment process the preference of other sports over baseball, and the access of baseball at a youth level. So let's start with the recruitment process. So the first thing is that Major League Baseball has set up the rules. Again, that's Dr. Burgos. In Latin America, an individual who is not a U.S. citizen or Canadian citizen is eligible at the age of 16 to be signed by any Major League team. In the United States, Major League rules dictate that a player has to be 18 or have had his graduating class from high school graduate before he is eligible to be drafted in the amateur draft. 
And so the trend in major league drafting has been skewing more and more toward college athletes being drafted. So this is the first issue with recruitment. Young African-Americans aren't playing college baseball. In 2020, of the 107 historically black colleges and universities, only 46 had baseball teams. If that isn't a telltale sign of what the issue is, I don't know what is. I mean, there is a huge disparity, man, a huge disconnect between baseball and the African-American community and the college level. HBCUs still have more African-American baseball athletes than other colleges and universities. For the NCAA schools overall, Black baseball players only make up 4.5%. Even if an athlete did decide to play at the collegiate level, baseball scholarships are not as generous or numerous as football and basketball scholarships. On average, NCAA Division I schools can provide baseball scholarships to about 30% of the players on their roster. Compare that to basketball and football programs, who can give scholarships to roughly 80% of their players. College football, man, it's, it's, just, it's just highly supported, right? I mean, I looked up the University of Texas and checked out their baseball team. They're ranked number three in the nation right now. And last year, $6.1 million in revenue entirely, the baseball team, right? Mm-hmm. The football team brought in $146 million in <laughs> revenue. I mean, and that Texas baseball team is no slouch, man. It's ranked third in the nation. Like a, a top flight baseball team can't even come close to competing. Come on, man. It's just simple economics, man, that baseball just doesn't have a chance. So this brings us to challenge number two, facing young players. Athletes who are good in several sports often choose another sport like football over baseball. Absolutely. Russell Wilson, for example, right? Mm -hmm. There's actually, it's weird. There's a lot of quarterbacks. Colin Kaepernick, Jameis Winston, Kyler Murray. I didn't know that. uh, Dante Culpepper, if you're old school. I did not know that. I didn't know he played baseball. See, there you go. All those guys were drafted by MLB teams. And then even like Ken Griffey's son, Trey, uh, he chose football. He played at University of Arizona. Wide open to the end zone. Touchdown, Trey Griffey. The kid's son comes up with his first touchdown catch. Drafted by the Steelers. I mean, even his own son did not choose baseball. I think that, you know what, being the athletic and strong and tall kid that he was, I think he uh, he chose football. It was it was a, a, a natural fit for him. And, I, and he made it, you know, to the highest level. Yeah. And it's the same with all of Ken Griffey's kids. They are all excellent athletes. But um, while the athletic legacy continues, none of them have chosen baseball. So my name is Cedric Washington, and I am a lifelong baseball fan from Little League all the way up to the majors. It's been a part of my life since I was four years old, and now I'm 41, and every time I say I'm going to get away from it, it pulls me back in. Cedric told me that when he was a kid, he and his friends would play stickball with whatever resources they had. Baseball was a pickup sport. Today, baseball seems strictly organized by parents in Little League. So my son is six, and the politics have already started. I um, I signed him up at five for T-ball here in Gwinnett County. I was not prepared for what we went into. There were 14 teams playing T-ball 
10 kids per team. So that's 144, five and six year olds. There was one black coach. And by the grace of seven pound, eight ounce baby boy Jesus, we ended up on his team. And on his team of 10, there were five little black boys, including his son and my son, two biracial kids, and three white kids. The other teams, there might have been one or two black kids on each team. And in most places, T-ball, no score is kept. <laughs> Here, it's baseball, baby. <laughs> score is kept, outs are given, time limit, innings, rules, strong rules. So it's it's not beginner instructional baseball. No, this is your son is playing in this league. He got to know what he's doing. Little League can be super competitive, even at the elementary school level, and expensive for parents. It's $200 a child. Youth sports today is a $19 billion industry. No matter the sport, be it basketball, football, or soccer, parents can expect to dish out a few hundred dollars per season just for their kids to compete at a basic level. This this sort of speaks to this issue that I hear of, like, people say, well, getting a pickup baseball game together is hard. And that's true because... This youth sports in America has basically made it feel like in order to play baseball, you need to be organized. You need to everyone has to have a glove. You need uh, cleats. You need all the equipment to do it. And it's got to be organized. And it's like baseball so popular in places where they have none of that. And they play pickup baseball with almost nothing like this is not specific to America playing pickup baseball. So I don't I don't totally buy this that like it has to be this expensive to play baseball. So I did a mission trip. I was in uh, Nicaragua. We're off on Little Corn Island, which is this small island off the coast of Nicaragua. The population is 800 people. The island is one square mile, as crazy as it sounds, you know, but we're on there. You know, there's no running motors on the island and we're there to to build a school there. They, they, they take baseball so seriously. You got these kids, right, that are three years old, four years old, five years old that are out there. And they've got sticks the size of just like little rods almost. And they're flicking bottle caps at each other. Right. And that's what they're using to play baseball. I'm like, these kids are going to be if they if you can hit a bottle cap being flicked at you with a stick. I mean, imagine, I mean, a baseball must look like a watermelon. right? (laughs) Yeah. And if they're lucky, if they're good enough, hopefully they'll get a chance to go to the Dominican Republic and play at one of the U.S.'s baseball academies. How do how do young players in Latin America then get to the MLB through this? So the Dominican Republic's academies serve as a pipeline for the MLB to recruit Latino youth in groups at wholesale rates. And this practice is called boatload mentality. And you know what? Like, I do not like the words boatload mentality because mm. it's reminiscent of like other terms that are used to disparage immigrants like boat people and straight off the boat. However, the boatload mentality is a real recruitment tactic that favors cheaper Latino athletes over more expensive American ones. Dr. Burgos laid this out for me. If we can sign 10 Dominicans for a total of $300,000, if one of them makes the major leagues, we've done great. $300,000 for 10 talented prospects is so much less than what a first round draft pick in a major league amateur draft gets. So economically, there's an incentive to go to Latin America for teams to spend their international bonus 
pool money to get players from those countries. That is not incentivized the same way in the United States. That's how the pathways into major league differs from Latin America and from the United States. There are lots of challenges facing baseball and it can get really complicated, especially when you think about the recruitment process. But what if it's really not that complicated? What if it's simple? What if it's an image issue? This is something that Chris Rock brought up in his HBO feature. Maybe baseball's just kind of just kind of whack. When you score in football or basketball, the players celebrate. Good times. Come on. But when you score in baseball, the code says you better not look too happy about it or else a baseball will go whizzing by your head. It's the only game where there's a right way to play the game. The white way. The way it was played a hundred years ago when only whites were allowed to play. Baseball even knows it's uncool. They've tried every trick in the book to be hip, but they just look so desperate. I don't care about any of this as a black guy. I care about this as a baseball fan. We don't really need baseball, but baseball needs us. Fact is, black America decides what's hot and what young people get excited about. You lose black America, you lose young America. And make no mistake, baseball is losing. Which brings us back to Ken Griffey Jr., the guy who went the other way and made baseball extremely cool. He captivated African-American kids all over the country. This is Shakia again. We had someone who looked like us, who was huge. He was popular, he listened to rap, he wore gold chains, he wore his hat backwards. Like, he was just the coolest. And then on top of that, there were the video games. You know, Kid Griffey Jr. was a megastar. Multiple video games, sneakers, you could get your Griffey gear. And he had children in urban communities all over trying to emulate his swing. And so for a person to kind of be a symbol of a generation of fans, particularly, like I said, African-American kids, that was huge. To me, that is part of his legacy. Cola, do you think that Ken Griffey is the last Black superstar baseball player? No. I think we're going to find our way back to this sport flat out. No. And I agree. One question I asked all of our guests was, who could be the next Ken Griffey Jr.? And almost everyone said the same exact name. Another young junior in the game today, Fernando Tatis Jr. Bloop to short left, and out goes Tatis to make the catch up into the air like Superman. It's Fernando Tatis Jr. He's got similar stats at a young age. He's got the family history in the game with his dad playing 11 seasons in the majors. But most importantly, like Griffey, he's got swag. Tatis, he's going to lead Sports Center. He's done it again. Another home run, and the Padres add to their advantage. And a bat flip amidst the flashing lights. Maybe Tatis's heritage isn't the same as Junior's, but he represents where the game is now and sets the stage for a whole new generation of fans. But to me, is Tatis the next Ken Griffey Jr.? <laughs> nah, neither is Mookie Betts or Tim Anderson or anybody else. 
They're all great players, but Ken Griffey Jr. is an original. That's why people love him so much. Cedric Washington, the baseball dad, says it best. If you find somebody that doesn't like Ken Griffey Jr., they don't like Santa Claus, they don't like Halloween, they're just a, a natural ass. That's the only way to describe them. <laughs> Bless their heart. That was producer Jessica Bodiford. Here's the pitch to Griffey. He unloads. High fly ball. It's hit deep to right. If it stays fair, it is a fair ball and it's gone. Number 600 for Ken Griffey Jr. Jr.'s last season with the Reds was in 2008. He was 38 years old, hitting 245, and he managed to join the exclusive 600 home run club. Henry Aaron, Babe Ruth. Willie Mays, Barry Bonds, Sammy Sosa, and Ken Griffey Jr., who waves to his family up into the seats, number 600. But he was traded two-thirds of the way through the season to the Chicago White Sox, who wanted Ken to shore up some of their batting for their postseason run. Now, Jr., the latest, on his way to the White Sox. He accepted the deal. Did he make the right move? Yeah, he did. I I love it. Although the White Sox were good that year and they won their division, they lost in the first round to Tampa Bay which left Ken at a crossroads. He wasn't ready to retire yet, and he found himself in a position to sign a small deal with two teams, the Atlanta Braves or the Seattle Mariners. The Atlanta Braves had a lot of pluses, mainly their proximity to Ken's family and where they held spring training. But according to ESPN, after an agonizing 24-hour period spent making the decision, Ken decided to finish where he started, in Seattle. Did Ken announcing he was going to come back to the Mariners? Did that uh, did that get your creative juices going again? <laughs> yep, that was the <laughs> that was literally the the catalyst for the back home album. Junior's back home now in the It was it was cool, man. Honoring my brother and seeing him come back, man, it was dope. After nearly a decade away from releasing music, the news of Ken coming home got Cola back in the studio, where he released a new single called Back Home. Ken's return to Seattle was met with a lot of fanfare, and for good reason. One of the most iconic Seattle athletes of all time was back home. But when things finally began to wrap up for Ken's baseball career, it wasn't all smooth sailing. The media again began to question Junior and his effort. And when it came time for him to retire, he did it the only way he could, his own way, which pissed some people off. But in a way, that story is at the heart of Ken Griffey Jr.'s legacy. That's next time on American Prodigy. This Blue Wire podcast was co-hosted by me, Alex Ward, with Kola Malik, and Jessica Bodiford. Production and writing by myself, Caroline Losneck, and Jessica. Editing by me and John Yales. Our music and theme song is by Kola Malik. Our production coordinator is Devin Shepard. And our baseball consultant is Gabriel Baumgartner. Research assistance by Walter Heyman. And the executive producers for American Prodigy are John Yales and Peter Moses. If you liked American Prodigy, subscribe give us a rating and a review it helps the podcast get to more and more people and maybe 
just maybe makes Little League a little less expensive. See you next time.